Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Clement. This show is brought to you by Keeneland, the Keeneland September yearling sale, globally recognized as the world's most important yearling sale. Took place Monday, September 12th to Saturday, September 24th. The Keeneland September is the place to source your future racing star as it produces more graded stakes winners than all other North American sales companies combined. Notable, notable graduates of the September sale include Epicenter, Malathon, Nest, Life is Good, Jackie's Warrior, Olympiad, Forte, and more. Visit theworldsyearlingsale.com to learn more and to view the catalog. Be talking about the September yearling sale today with a couple of special guests who are active in different ways at the September yearling sale at Keeneland. Some really great stories that we'll be able to touch on on today's show. Really enjoyed having both of these individuals on and showing a little bit of some of the different sides of getting into the world of horse racing and the world of the sale. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Glad to have you here as always. We'll get right to it. So happy to welcome in now my friend, Joe Christofek. Uh, You may know him from Churchill Downs. You may know him from Brilliant Racing. You may know him from a million other things. Joe, we were just talking about all of the different things that you have your hand in, but I'm really happy to have you on today and talk a little bit about the sales side of the industry. Yeah, well, a couple things. Thanks so much for having me, Acacia. Normally when I'm on a podcast... <laughs> I'm dissecting races, handicapping races. So this is very refreshing and I'm looking uh, very forward to seeing where you go with the interview. And uh, like I told you before we got on the call here, you're one of those, I remember you when people for me, (laughs) super proud of you. You're doing a great job in everything you do. Your career path has uh, gone nothing but forward and, you know, really proud of you and the way you've done things. And, uh, you know, you you are a, a credit to the industry, and you, like I said, you do things the right way. So I just wanted to let you know that. And uh, you know, we we need we need good people like you in this industry that promote the game that we love so much. Oh, thanks, Joe. Now that I'm beat red, blushing, uh, huh. I really really appreciate that. So kind of you, and somebody that's been a friend to me right from the beginning as well, which I'm I'm really really grateful for. And as you and I were talking about, like you said, you're usually handicapping the races, which is we all enjoy that side of things too. But I wanted to talk to you in particular about brilliant racing today and you said it's something that really fulfills you, the partnership, the people involved, the sales, the horses. Tell me a little bit about forming this partnership and where the genesis of the idea really came from. Well, years ago, I used to own bits and pieces of horses in Chicago, Arlington, Hawthorne, et cetera. But I was never in control of the partnership or never, I never really had a say and what was going on. So as the years went on, I'm like, I always want to get back into ownership, but I would like to have a say in the horses we buy, how they're managed, et cetera. And, you know, I have some disposable income. I don't have any children. I I make a decent living, but not enough to be able to afford horses. If you buy into one horse and they're on the sidelines or they don't pan out, you're like flushing money down the toilet. So (laughs) always thought about like forming a partnership, you know, doing three horses in the partnership to where you actually have a, a fighting chance. So the genesis of Brilliant Racing happened five years ago. Uh, my significant other, Natalie uh, Gills, and I always talked about owning horses together. And Brandon Stoblow at the time, and he still does, 
private clocking at Churchill. He's got a really good eye for a horse. He and I had talked about owning horses together. So the three of us got together at a dinner. We mapped out a plan of, of how we thought we could do this. And, you know, I do have some recognition in the industry. So I think that helped us get off the ground with our first partnership. We are now in partnership five. And what we do is, you know, we go to the sales. At first it was the two-year-old sales. Now it's the yearling sales at Keeneland. We buy three horses. We collect all the money up front. We've gotten, you know, probably 120 new owners in the game uh, since the beginning, legitimate owners too. I mean, if there's a cash call, they have to put up the money mm -hmm. and it's gone really, really well. I mean, there's so many ups and downs in this game, as you well know, Acacia, but I think owning the horses and having a say in manage, managing them really helps me do my job on the desk at Churchill and Fairgrounds because you have a, a, a much better sense of why trainers are putting horses in the races and how difficult it is to find the right race for the right horse. And, and the fulfillment comes from buying these horses and watching them develop and winning races and making people happy and overcoming all the pitfalls that are involved in horse ownership in this game. So uh, yeah, fulfillment is the perfect word for it. I think the first time I really kind of became aware of what you all were doing was with a horse named uh, Eskin Ford, affectionately called Kenny. And anytime I was looking through the past performances, I'd be like, oh, Kenny's racing. That's awesome. Oh. And and just seeing the excitement that you all really seem to have for this particular horse and the ride that he took you on. Can you talk a little bit about that and seeing the development of these young horses right from the beginning and through their racing career? Yeah, so we buy young horses, like I said, the two-year-olds, the yearlings. And for us, it's a journey watching these horses develop, getting them to the races, finding out, you know, and asking for it's a very quirky horse, you know, what they do best, what makes them tick. We've got Greg Foley and Michelle Lovell, and we've got one horse with Matt Shire uh, as well. And, you know, they're slow and steady, you know, leaving no stone unturned. We only have three bullets to fire, so we want to try to maximize the ability of all the horses that we have. And we'll drop them in class. We've learned over the years. you got to put them where they belong in order to succeed. But to us, it's even more than just the races. It's the journey leading up to it. We've got members in our group that feel the same way. If you're interested in getting into ownership and you want instant gratification and instant action, you know, we are not a revolving door of claiming horses. We claimed a couple in the first partnership, uh, didn't work out uh, our expectations. We're not against claiming horses in the future, but we really appreciate the journey from start to finish. And asking for it was the second horse we bought. A yes is ginger. Actually, our most successful horse was the first one we ever bought, but he was, he's totally quirky. Unfortunately, got claimed from us last November. He's won a couple of races uh, for various trainers since. And every time that a horse runs, I will reach out to the trainer. I will reach out to the jockey, tell them exactly how that horse needs to be ridden. Uh, because if you don't run the race the way he wants to run the race, he's just going to call it a day on you. Mm -hmm. uh, and we learned that through trial and error. And it's all part of the journey is learning the horse, horse's quirks, what they do best. And, uh, you know, a lot of satisfaction comes from that. You know, we joke, you know, there's a, a, a cover on the Blood Horse magazine of Kenny winning the Indiana Derby without a jockey and Gabe Sias and Mr. Money. They're on the inside and Gabe used to ride Eskin Ford. He was a regular rider 
And, you know, this horse dumped Julian at the start and he ran a professional race and he actually won without the rider. And, you know, it was a very uh, trying time for us watching him, you know, run around the track without a jockey, but <laughs> it just added to his legend uh, given what he did. There are so many ups and downs in the sport and having a partnership and having people that maybe aren't as familiar with the game of racing. It's a great way for them to kind of start to understand what the sport really entails behind the scenes. But as you mentioned, there there are some some pitfalls as well as there are also some great joys and some great successes. How have you navigated those waters with your team and um, kind of being able to bring bad news, I guess, more than anything? Uh, that is a great question because we had a rough go of it this past winter with the Brilliant Racing 4 group. Uh, the first time we bought yearlings, we bought a really nice tonalist filly. We thought that she was the best of the three. She was with Tom McCrocklin uh, in Ocala. And one morning we got a phone call and Tom told us that she was dead in the field. Mm. And she had been working heads up, you know, training heads up with a horse a bull Doro that he sold at the two-year-old in training sale, the first Ocala sale for 1.2 million. Wow. So we were really high on her. Uh, the reports from Tom were great. Mysterious kind of circumstances as to how she passed. You know, I don't really, you know, understand necessarily the, the ins and outs of uh, the necropsy and the medical uh, on that situation or any, I live the, the horsey stuff more to Brandon and Natalie, but that was really tough. I mean, mm -hmm. And then literally a week later, a horse that we bought into, Carmel Crush, he got a 93 buyer at Fairgrounds. We bought 25% of him with our good friends, uh, you know, Marshall Graham and his group. And we were super excited about him and literally was entered in a race. And three days before the race, Matt calls me and, you know, tells me he's injured. He's going to need a lot of time off. So within a, a week, we got two horrible pieces of news with two of our four horses and we got on a zoom call. We got everybody together. We broke the news. It's a rough time, mm -hmm. but we've come out of it. Carmel crushes, uh, you know, train back in training. He's doing really well. We luckily insured the Philly and, you know, we own 50% of her took that insurance money and bought a two-year-old in training that is actually going to debut at Churchill uh, this week for Michelle level this coming week. Uh, we hope if he gets in the entries called don't let go. And um, we've got two other nice two-year-olds as well. So we're going to have a lot of action coming up here soon, but yeah, delivering that kind of news and having people understand mm -hmm. we're very fortunate in our group to have people, a lot of which understand the game of racing. They've been in other partnerships. They've had less than stellar experiences and I, I think, you know, we do things the right way with the communication, the transparency. We send out, you know, statements on the financials monthly. I know a lot of groups don't even do that. Mm -hmm. So we, we've cultivated a really good group of people that are understanding. And more importantly than anything, Acacia, they trust the three of us. And you have great horsemen in your corner as well with, with Matt Shire and Michelle Lovell and Greg Foley, um, who I know even with the, some of the recent purchases, Greg Foley's been in as far as on the partnership and the owning side as well. What are those relationships and how important is it to have good trainers in your corner that you're going to be able to cultivate right from the beginning with as well? I mean, we could 
reach out to just about any trainer and ask them to train for us. And I've good, got good relationships, you know, as you do Acacia across the industry, but we wanted to find trainers that were good fits for us. So, mm-hmm. you know, trainers that don't have 120 horses in training, uh, trainers that welcome people coming back to the barn. We've got a lot of partners. Sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming trainers that have a slow and steady hand with the horses. And, you know, when you've got 32 year olds, you can, you know, maybe press them a little harder and find out which ones are good and so on and so forth. We, we need to try to maximize all the horses we have, you know, the, the training part is the most important, how they go about their business, their communication with us, their transparency, et cetera, et cetera. But the communication that we have with Michelle, you know, we just have the one horse with Matt, but in particular with Michelle and Greg and Travis Foley, who, you know, pretty much is the behind the scenes guy for his dad's operation. That communication is imperative when you're talking about where to place the horses, how the horses are developing, putting together these partnerships. I mean, we we bought three horses at the recent uh, Keeneland September sale all in partnerships. We own mm-hmm. 50% of one, 25% of another, 33% of another, which increases your opportunity to buy a better horse and lessens the blow month to month on the bills. And Travis does a great job putting those partnerships together, you know, with people that kind of have the same mentality and attitude uh, that we do. So, you know, those relationships take time to build, finding out which trainers fit best for you takes a little bit of time and trial and error, but we feel like uh, leading up to this fifth partnership, we're in a really good place. And you mentioned the three purchases at Keeneland and wanted to ask you about those in particular. uh, I saw on your Facebook one that seems very exciting because of his name named in honor of one of the greats in the sport of horse racing. If you've never had the opportunity to uh, spend some time with John Dooley, I couldn't recommend it more. And I thought it was pretty cool that you have one honoring uh, the great duels. Well, there's a quick story behind that. So the Foley's used to have a horse named the Rougarou, which <laughs> is like a mythical creature, Cajun country, Louisiana. And occasionally he had this big white face and he had these big blue eyes. And, you know, for lack of a better word, he was a freaky looking horse. Mm-hmm. Really fast Louisiana bred. So every time the horse would run, I'd be, you know, at the desk, you know, doing the pre-race analysis. And I would say, ladies and gentlemen, hide your children. It's the <laughs> Rougarou. And just played it up and people loved it. And John Dooley's a great race caller, but he's a huge fan of the sport. If you ever follow his Twitter, he's always promoting Indiana, Fairgrounds, Arlington, wherever he's working. And he just loved the Rougarou. So we go out, we have margaritas with John. We have a good time. He likes to enjoy himself. And Travis Foley and I were always like, we're going to name a horse for Dooley. And he loves the Rougarou. Let's name it the Dooligarou. <laughs> and it hasn't passed the jockey club yet. They're like, and we submitted the name. They're like, what does Dooligarou mean? Like, it, <laughs> So we, we've got to get it passed. We're working with them. We're quite you know, confident that everything's going to be good. But it's an honor to him. He's going to have fun with it. And uh, we're going to have fun campaigning the horse. But it's a nice Louisiana bread. We paid 100000 for him. Uh, Peter Patel's one of the uh, partners. He owns a liquor store in Louisville. Great guy. 
And then West Point actually came in on that horse as well. So we've got a gr good group involved with uh, that horse. He's going to be broken in Louisiana. Got a lot of partners in Louisiana that'll be able to go see him, you know, during the course of his development. I thought uh, it even makes more sense now because you had said, ladies and gentlemen, hide your margaritas, as uh, I've had the pleasure of sharing a few margaritas with John Dooley as well. <laughs> exactly. Yep. That's what it's all about. Now, you also have a, a couple other purchases there, including the brother of the Florida Derby winner, White Abario, who, of course, uh, we're recording this Saturday morning, be running in the Pennsylvania Derby later today. Um, tell me a little bit about that one. Yeah. So that horse was strategically placed in book four because they thought he would get more attention there. At least that was what we were told. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely checks out on the physical. You look at the pedigree and White Abario's the first foal out of uh, an into mischief mare by the name of Catching Diamonds. He's by race day, who's not exactly, you know, a commercial mm -hmm. top of the line stallion. The jury's still out on Lord Nelson mm -hmm. as a stallion. He's only had a couple crops, had some decent horses, but I think that allowed us to get this horse for 155 grand. If he was by a different stallion, you know, one of the hot stallions right now, maybe he would have gone for a half a million. So we're taking the chance on Lord Nelson. You know, we really like his physical. We think he's a good match with this mare. She's only had the one fold. White Abario won the Florida Derby with a mm -hmm. under the radar stallion. So hoping to catch lightning in a bottle. And uh, yeah, we're super excited about him. And your final uh, purchase, the Son of Blame, and in partnership with Foley Racing as well. Yeah, so that one is by Blame out of uh, Pioneer the Nile Mare. Got him out of book four as well. And when you look at his pedigree, it's not loaded with black type. Um, you know, when I'm doing the pedigree re research, I'm like, guys, I don't know about this horse. But he's got some under-the-radar pedigree. Whatever the damn throws seems to match what the stallion brings to the table blames a hard hitting under the radar probably underappreciated stallion and brandon staubel uh and greg foley just absolutely loved the physical on this horse so i think we got him for one hundred and twenty-five thousand because he doesn't have the great page mm -hmm. but they love the physical on him and you know we're not in a position financially to buy those half a million dollar blue blooded horses with fantastic pedigree and fantastic physicals. So we kind of have to be a little bit creative when we buy. And I think cre creativity wise with the three that we got, you know, and for the prices we paid, uh, we're super happy about it. You really do have to be able to kind of juggle one thing or the other. And and when you go through the sales, particularly Keeneland September, it can be a grind with so many horses, but you can find some value. Like you said, if you're looking for just all pedigree, all physical, those are of course going to be the ones that everybody is on. So what's the sale process like for your team in looking through and deciding which ones to go for? Another great question. So uh, Brandon and Natalie are the ones that go to the sale and do the physical inspections, we look at the book and we go, we go for book three, but you know, we're usually out of the game in book three. Our sweet spot seems to be book four. That's what it's been the last two years. And, you know, they'll look at the physicals. I do all the pedigree work. 
And honestly, Acacia, you know, pedigree is not all about what you see, mm -hmm. you know, in the black type. Sometimes the black type is deceiving. You go back and look at a horse that has black type and you look at the past performances and you're like, man, you know, this horse has black type circumstantially. Or you go through the past performances and you're like, wow, this horse only ran six times. This mare only ran six times, but she ran 103 Brish. She had a real mm -hmm. bright future. The future was cut short, most likely due to injury. So I try to go through and find the diamonds in the rough on the pedigree side, the under-the-radar pedigrees that people that are just looking at the sales book and just looking at familiar names or just looking at black type, you know, I like to dig really deep into the pedigrees. And I dig deep into the pedigrees every day when I'm handicapping. So I feel like I have a good sense of what works, what doesn't work. I remember a lot of these mares when they ran. Uh, I remember a lot of the, you know, the siblings or, you know, the offspring of the dams uh, in particular. So to me, that's my strength in all this is looking at those pedigrees, trying to find some, you know, pedigrees that are under the radar that everybody doesn't see. And then we just try to match them up. We try to match up the physicals with the pedigrees. But bottom line, the physicals always going to win out. If they like a horse on physical and they think they're going to get the horse at the price that we think the horse is worth, it's going to override the pedigree. Because like you said, people pay for pedigrees, bottom line. I thought you brought up a really interesting point at the start, um, too, because it's something that I've also felt when you are really entrenched in the world of the sales and you are following all of those pedigrees, it kind of weaves a little thread right throughout all the handicapping as well. And when you're looking through and you're like, oh, wow, I understand why this horse is what it is because of that cross, because of that breeding. Do you find that there's a lot of overlap with handicapping races and looking through past performances compared with what you're doing with the sales? 110%, because I think when people sell yearlings, you know, the people that prep the yearlings are trying to get those yearlings to look as good as they can. The people that sell the two-year-olds are trying to get them to run an eighth of a mile, a quarter of a mile as fast as they can. That's what a lot of people buy. Now, when I'm looking at the pedigrees every day for more years than I want to admit on this podcast, <laughs> uh, it, for the handicapping, those are the horses that are running. Those are the horses that are actually performing on the racetrack. So, you know, you see this stallion with this broodmare stallion, or you see stallions that you think might be good and they get all the best mares and they're just not producing to the level of expectation based on the mares they're getting. Or you see a stallion that's being bred to what look like they might be subpar mares and they're overperforming in the breeding shed and those horses are performing well on the racetrack. That's kind of sort of what I'm looking for. I do this every day. You know, at Churchill Downs Fairgrounds, we see a lot of nicely bred horses come through our tracks. We see some under the radar, not so well bred horses come through our tracks. Once horses start running, you can throw the pedigree right out the window. It's what they do on the racetrack, how much talent they have, how much heart they have. And to me, that's by far the most important thing. You have some exciting new prospects with the yearlings, with the, the next year of the partnership. What are some of the goals for you and your team with Brilliant Racing moving forward? What are some of the things that you'd really love to see happen with this partnership? I just want to have fun and win races, Acacia. We've, all five of our partnerships have basically, you know, 
brought the same amount of money, you know, financially as how much we've collected with how, with how much we're able to spend. You know, Brandon has more aspirations of being a bloodstock agent. Mm-hmm. He does a really good job. You know, we don't use anybody but our own people. You know, we consult with the Foley's and, you know, with others on the horses that we buy. But uh, we're, we're doing all the work. Natalie started in the show horse world and she just has a great feel for the horse. You know, the demeanor, you know, the, the physicality. She can watch a horse walk and, you know, whether or not she thinks that horse is going to have a nice stride when they become a racehorse. She's got a really good feel for the horse. So, like, for us, I mean, for me in particular, this is fun. This is just uh, a means of fulfillment. Like, there, there are small percentages that are taken because we do put a lot of work into this stuff. But you know, based on the time that's spent versus what we actually get out of it, you know, financially, you would be like, why are you doing this? And I'm telling <laughs> you how we're doing this. I can't afford to own horses on my own. Mm-hmm. And I get to help manage the horses and I get to help, you know, watch them develop. And I get my picture taken. We've won 17 races out of 105 starts. We've had a two-time stakes winner. Uh, yes, it's Ginger. She's going to sell in November, the breeding stock sale, she's in full to McLean's music. So oh, we're super wow, exciting. Yeah, she's a yes, it's true mayor. So, you know, we're hoping, you know, the buyers in this market uh, gravitate towards her. But, you know, Brandon and Natalie might have more aspirations of doing more of this stuff in the future. But to me, it's just a mean to owning horses and, and a means to having fun. What do you think has been your favorite experience with it so far? I know, yes, it's Ginger and the stakes wins, I'm sure, have been really expe- been really special. But what's kind of the biggest takeaway for you as of yet? Well, I'll give you two real quick. So uh, Ginger had a knee injury. She was off 13 months. We thought she had a lot of ability. We owned 100% of her in Brilliant Racing 1. We were getting her close to the races, but we were running out of money. We already had a cash call in that partnership. You know, Kenny was making money. He was keeping us going, but we were running out of money. And I called Travis Foley, first horse we ever had with them, and said, hey, man, we need a partner on this horse. We thought we were going to run her maiden claiming 30 off a 13-month layoff. He sends me a video. They, they, they buy in on the horse. He sends me a video a month later, and she works five furlongs and like 58 in hand. And he's like, what the heck is this? And, you know, she impacted twice Acacia, like we, she cost us a lot of money, Mm -hmm. but we knew she had talent. We knew she had heart. She's got a, uh, an attitude. She's so sassy and we wanted to give her a chance. So we, we, we made it work. She debuted, made the special aid at Alice off a 13 month layoff. She won that race. She won another race. She won two stakes for us. We drove out to Lone Star and won the chicken fried steaks of all races last year. <laughs> and now, you know, we gave her time off. She came back. She's in full. She ran the chicken fried steaks again this year. She ran third in full. We planned on running her again, but they got the stupid 200-day rule in Kentucky now, I mean, that we didn't know about. Uh, no, well, not even 200 days. I think, it's, I think it's 120 days. So we couldn't run her, so she's going to sell in November. So tremendous satisfaction from that one. And then we have a horse named Steely Danza who was 0 for 12. He ran second six times. He broke his maiden for 10 at fairgrounds. And honestly, I almost cried. (laughs) Like this horse 
deserves this win so bad. People are like, this horse has got no heart. He runs second all the time. That horse tries his ass off to the wire every time. There was always one better than him. So when he finally won, it it just made me feel really good and just happy for the horse, you know? I love those kinds of stories. And and here's to many more wins, Joe. Um, really, really happy to have you on and really excited to follow your upcoming prospects. And thank you so much for coming on the show. When you get involved in horse ownership, make sure you get involved with people that you trust and people that yeah. you're going to have fun with. If you thought about it, whether it's brilliant racing or another group and you like horse racing and you love the animals, get involved in some way, shape or form in horse ownership. There's a lot of inexpensive ways to do it. And I just think the experience of what you get out of it uh, adds a lot to your life. Really happy to welcome in a special guest, Dewan Smith, who has an amazing story. I'm sure you've seen him over the years as a ringman at Keeneland Sales. And then this year as someone selling a horse that he pinhooked. Dewan, I'm so happy to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Um, first of all, tell me a little bit about your relationship with Keeneland. What brought you first to get involved with the sales company in the first place? Well, the head ringman, Ron Hill, I was working with him uh, over at California. And um, he just saw the way I handled horses and uh, he approached me and asked me, do I want a position in the ring with him at Keeneland? And uh, I was more willing to accept now, you've handled some really expensive horses over the years in the ring um, of all sorts throughout the years. Can you tell me a little bit about that moment when you bring a horse into the ring and people are bidding on that horse? What's that feeling like for you? And what are some of the things that you're thinking about at that time? Well, um, you get a little bit of a rush. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know, rush is exciting. I mean, it's just... Uh, I don't know the experience that's hard to explain. I mean, because even before the sale, sale ring, I mean, I was riding expensive horses dealing with top pleasure. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it was kind of, you know, at first it was stage fright. <laughs> <you know? laughs> but after you've done a couple, you get kind of warmed up to it and it becomes, you know, a normal routine. And in that moment, how important is the horsemanship? Because the horse is really experiencing a lot for the first time, especially with young horses like yearlings um, going through the ring. And you need to be able to kind of keep them calm as well. Uh, yeah. What's that experience like? Okay, so being a horseman, you have yeah. an understanding of horses. Mm -hmm. So each horse, there's, there's all different kind of horse types. And you always dealt with that type before with experience. So once you bring that horse in the ring, you got to figure out, hey, uh, you know, how are, how are you mentally? Like, mm -hmm. are you a nervous horse or your confidence, you know, and you have to handle them different. Like a nervous horse, you have to be kind of soft on the shank, right. you know, cause, and you got to get them to be comfortable around you. Usually I let them smell my glove cause it smell like other horses. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I pet them if they allow you to, or, um, if they got a lot of confidence, they kind of strong. So you got to kind of take a firmer grip on them and, you know, you, you just got to kind of feel the horse when you uh, have them in your hands. Were there any experiences that you had um, some crazy stories with bringing some horses in the rings, things that kind of stand out and you say, you never believe this story, something that I had to go through being in the ring. Well, you have some horses that really don't want to be there mm -hmm. and um, they're kind of, 
when you get one of those, you kind of question, like, what am I doing? <laughs> because, yeah, you have some that just want to, you know, they don't even know where they at or where they going or, you know, they don't know what to expect. So they're kind of all over the place and you got to kind of keep calm because the more, the more calm you stay, the more you can kind of think and how to handle that situation. Do you ever follow horses that you've handled going through the ring? Like I said, um, we see some really uh, well-bred expensive horses going through. And as you said, you, you have a relationship with uh, being on the racetrack as well. Do you ever follow the horses at all? Um, I haven't personally, mm -hmm. um, I would like to start trying to, but it, so many come to the ring and, mm -hmm. and quite frankly, you never know who's going to turn out to be who, uh, sometimes we'll go back and check out on YouTube on, uh, you know, who had handled certain horses when they make a career to sell. Now tell me a little bit about your background with horses. How did you get into being involved with horses and growing up around them? How did they affect your life growing up? Well, I did not grow up around horses. I was born in uh, New York City, and uh, I didn't get around livestock until about middle school uh, when we moved to Virginia. And um, even Virginia, I had done other things before I got into horses. I used to be, you know, I used to cook at a restaurant. You know, I was a contractor. I helped build houses and just little odd jobs, you know, like building fences and stuff like that. Um, I got into horses cause I was still young and uh, I met a guy at a party and his dad was Dale Jenkins, who was Rodney King's brother, was from a jumper. And I'm um, just hanging around with him. I was like, you know, Hey, what's your dad do? You know, I see all these horses and, you know, nice paddocks and a nice house. And I'm like, Hey, you know, what's your, what's your dad do? And he was, he kind of explained to me. So just hanging out with him, I kind of got involved in it. You, as you mentioned, you rode for Todd Pletcher, Jonathan Thomas, been around some really incredible horses um, through those outfits. Can you tell me a little bit about that and uh, what riding and, and what that opportunity has done for you? Well, um, I had to kind of work my way up. So mm -hmm. when I eventually wanted to start riding, there was nobody there to kind of, you know, teach me. There was nobody that had time. So my friend Jamie, the one that got me into the industry, uh, we bought a, a horse for $500. She was running six and seven at Charlestown. She never hit the board. Well, I learned how to ride her. And just from running track in high school, I learned how to rate. I know you don't want to start the race faster than you finish. Mm -hmm. So I kind of just by knowing, you know, basically common sense, I kind of like ease her up and show her to pace herself. She started winning. We won like four times with her at Charlestown. And then she got claimed and went up to Finger Lakes and won another hundred, hundred thousand. Um, so then I wanted to get into the two-year-old sale because I heard about them. So getting into that was kind of difficult because didn't nobody know me. They didn't know how good I, you know, how good of a rider I was. So I knew Michelle Hemaway from Virginia, yeah. from the little farms that we, you know, start off at. And her and her husband at that time, Ian Hemaway, they gave me a chance at the sale. So people see me riding their horses, which was very tough. Um, I think they hurt quite a few riders so people told me to be careful <laughs> um, but I was able to straighten them out um they did well as while I was helping them I was introduced to Kip Elser I started riding for him and uh one day I was telling everybody hey I want to I'm gonna go ride at the racetrack you know I'm gonna go ride for a good trainer and I don't think nobody took me seriously so Michelle since I helped her out she gave me the contact of Nick Bush 
who was one of Fletcher's main riders for a while. I think he'd been with him for like 12 years. Um, and he rode a lot of nice horses for him as well. Um, so he kind of got me into uh, with Fletcher, went up to Saratoga and just started riding from there. Um, after riding from Fletcher, John and Thomas, you know, I guess he seen me on the track. So when I eventually uh, moved down to Ocala, he was down there and because uh, he had ties with Briderwood. So I started helping him at Briderwood Farm. And that's when I got the chance to ride Catholic Boy. What an amazing horse. He was, of course, grade one winner on turf and dirt. What, what's it like being able to be a little bit part of a of a journey of a horse like that? Just be around an animal with so much class. I mean, it was the best. It was yeah. a very, very good experience. I mean, I never, I mean, I, I, I've written a lot of nice horses for Todd. And, you know, some of them you look at, you didn't expect them to be so nice. But Catholic Boy, riding him, the way he feels, cover ground. I mean, it's like... It, you literally be saying wow while you're riding them. That's cool. You know, he felt awesome. Now, you mentioned Kip El- Elser and prepping horses for the two-year-old sales. Obviously, a much different kind of experience versus yearling sales and the two-year-old sales. What were some of the things that you learned a little bit about prepping young horses for those two-year-old sales? Those breeze shows, so important and a little bit different than what we'd see, you know, with horses even training on the racetrack, getting ready for their first race. It is a night and day difference. Yeah. So the two-year-old sales, it's all about, you know, them showing a little bit of speed for a for a quarter of a mile. Plus, you have to really teach them to be on the right lead because baby horses get tired faster than older horses. So by them using the correct lead, when they get tired on one leg, they switch, they swap leads mm-hmm. and then they use the other leg and it kind of save themselves, you know, from tiring out too fast. And um, there's a thing called showing the pole. They need to know how to leave the pole correctly to get the best workout. And on the track horses, you're teaching them the total opposite. You want them to break out the gate pretty good, but then you want them to come back to you and rate the sales because you don't want them to burn out going a mile and a quarter or something like that. So two-year-old sales, you teach them to go fast, quick, track, you, you're teaching them to ease back and save the sales. Uh- as we mentioned at the top of the, of the show here, you're kind of shifting things now as far as you being the one to pin hook some horses. I know that you had the opportunity to pick up some prospects with Taylor made, and it's not an easy thing for anybody that's ever been involved in pin hooking a horse. What was the thought process in wanting to dive into this side of it? Well, I had all through my riding career, I have been with Taylor made. Like mm-hmm. I started doing sales before I started riding. So Taylor May, they knew me when I was still very green and still, you know, kind of knuckleheadish. I wasn't kind of serious into the game. But you have people like Mark Taylor and John Hall, who was very, very good at, you know, helping and molding people to become a better person. Not just working for them, but they help you as people, you know, just help you better yourself. And they kind of got me more involved into horses and just watching how they do things you know, teaching about confirmation and pedigree and all that kind of stuff, it, it really kind of, you know, caught my attention. And I, I really wanted to try to get into that. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the horses that you picked up with them and that you're forming yourself? Yeah. So uh, I had uh, so Mark, you know, he's he's kind of, you know, guiding me mm-hmm. on what to look for and, you know, pedigree wise. So he helped out with, uh, you know, picking the two horses for me and, um, where to put them and, you know, kind of some guidelines on what should we do and what should we use 
prepping wise and you know, I'm very grateful to have them have that help. You have a, a palace malice cult that we saw go through the, the ring. What was it like seeing a horse that you'd had your hands on and that with the guidance of Taylor made, you were able to bring and then sell at Keeneland a place where you'd been handling those horses going through the ring. Oh, that was an awesome experience to see them grow from a wingling to a yearling and then actually, you know, working at Kingland and selling them through King. I mean, that was, that was just a, a grand experience. I mean, something that I just couldn't really explain. I mean, it's just a wonderful feeling. Did you feel like it was your child going through the ring? Yes. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. What was and, that, that feeling like, was your heart pumping as the bidding was going on? Can you, can you put it into words at all? Yes. Well, it was more, I mean, my, my, my heart was going about a hundred miles per hour, but <laughs> it was more of the pressure, you know, of everybody knowing that I'm selling the horse. So right. everybody was kind of, you know, the tension, you know, everybody was kind of, you know, I, I was more worried, like, what if, what if, the, health, what if the horse doesn't sell well? Yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. And I mean, the handling part, I'm, I'm already like used to. It wasn't that. It was just more the experience of, hey, the whole world knows that this horse is going through the ring at this time. And, you know, because the article, the first ring man to sell his own, you know, all that mm -hmm. kind of publicity was kind of the more worrisome part than anything. <laughs> well, what was the support like from Keeneland, too? It seems like the whole team was cheering you on and really excited to see you with your well, own prospect in the ring. They was wonderful. They was, I mean, it surprised me. I mean, I know there was a lot of good guys, but I really haven't spent too much time around them, but they was all for it. They was, I had a lot of support through them and Telemade and you know, the, the, the ring bands and, you know, I mean, it was very, very nice. I know your wife, Madeline involved with horses as well. And I know being able to pin hook some more horses, a goal of yours, what, what's, what's the future like for you? What are some other horses you have your eyes on, or, or maybe you'll be selling soon? Well, we're going to try to do, uh, another wingling to a yearling. And we also want to do a yearling to a two-year-old. Mm -hmm. So we're going to try to do the training part of it as well. With your past experience in prepping horses for the two-year-old sale, was that something that you enjoyed and you feel like you kind of know exactly now what people are looking for there? Oh yeah. I mean, I'm like my, I'm, I'm well more experienced prepping yearlings to two-year-olds because mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just like very, very good at it. I mean, mm -hmm. I've been doing it for a while for other people. So, uh, no, I have a lot of confidence that, you know, and, and the work done would be kind of, would be no problem. And having my wife on my side, you know, she's a very good hand. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she put 110% into everything she does. I mean, she goes above and beyond to make sure the horses are comfortable, fed, you know, fed well and well taken care of. I mean, way, it does a heck of a job. I mean, without her, it'd be, it, you know, this would be very tough. I love seeing that and really rooting for you so much. I can't wait to follow everything and starting out from New York city to where you are now. Did you ever think you'd end up here? No, I haven't. <laughs> I mean, I'm very blessed. I mean, it could have went so many different directions, you know, especially coming from a background like that, you know, uh, come out of New York being very poor, uh, you know, moving in out of shelters and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I would never, I, never in, in a lifetime expect to be doing this coming from there. 
wishing you all the best with your upcoming prospects. Congratulations on your Palace Malice cult. Um, Dewan, thank you so much for doing this. It was so nice to, to talk to you and hear a little bit about your story. Yes, thank you very much for having me. And uh, I really appreciate it. And that'll do it for another episode of In the Ring with Acacia Clement. A huge thank you to both of my guests, Joe Christofek and Dewan Smith. I really enjoyed having these two people on to talk a little bit and share their stories about their involvement with the sales. You can continue to follow both of them uh, and the Brilliant Racing Partnership for Joe as well. Uh, a big thank you to Keeneland for their support of In the Ring. I uh, hope that you enjoyed following the Keeneland September yearling sale. We'll talk more about it in the coming weeks too and of course Keeneland is not done yet there's a lot of exciting action to come from Keeneland in the fall including the Keeneland November sale as well as their exciting fall race meet so uh, stay tuned for lots of great stuff to come on in the ring as always if you have any ideas things that you're interested in let me know please feel free to share this episode I'll be posting it out on social media and uh, as always don't forget to sign up over on in the money media check out the newsletter and all of the great content from my colleagues over there as well. I'll see you next time on In the Ring.